Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Loud original. It's February 1993. The FBI's hunt for the thieves who stole $7.4 million in cash from the Rochester Brinks Depot has led them to New York City. And when the FBI were trying to find someone who didn't want to be found in the big city, Richard Vega got the call. They would call us and tell us, uh, we would like you to do surveillance on a certain subject. Here's what we're looking for, who the person meets or where he goes. And our surveillance team would go out. We were in unmarked cars. Richard Vega led a team of undercover cops in New York City. These weren't the standard FBI agents in suits and ties. These were the guys in shorts and T-shirts driving around the city in muscle cars or hiding out in the back of vans with their long lens cameras, blending invisibly into the scenery. At the time, I had a Camaro, a Chevy Camaro, and we had various cars that did not look like federal cars. So we would go out and we would take photographs. We would watch what they were doing. We would note who they spoke to or if there was a car that was connected, we would get the license plate. And I really enjoyed it. Richard follows some of America's most notorious criminals. One was John Gotti, the head of the Gambino Mafia family, the most notorious organized crime group in America. Gotti was the most powerful mafia boss in the US and suspected of ordering multiple murders. He was one of the most feared men in New York. And when the FBI wanted to build a case to put Gotti behind bars, it was Richard and his team that got the call. During that time, we watched John Gotti do a lot of funny things. He didn't drive a lot. He was usually driven places. He had a chauffeur, bodyguard, uh, that would take him. But every now and then, he'd want to go places to meet with people by himself. So he would jump in his car, he had a Mercedes, and he would drive around, and he was a terrible driver. Uh, But we witnessed him several times. He'd stop at a light or he'd pull over and he'd jump out and he would approach just innocent people that happened to be stopped at a traffic light or at a stop sign, and he'd start screaming at them, I know you're a cop and I know you're following me. And sometimes when he did this, the people knew exactly who it was and they were frightened. He was in the newspapers almost every day Not once did he ever approach one of the surveillance people. So uh, my understanding is John Gotti always felt that he was followed every day. And he was not followed every day, but we did follow him a lot. There were, what, five agents, I believe it was, that testified at John Gotti's trial. And I was one of those agents that testified. And and I enjoyed uh, my testimony. I enjoyed explaining to the jury uh, what it was that I witnessed every day with John Gotti sitting there making faces at me. <laughs> and it's true, we really were one of the best, if I may say that. Back in Rochester, FBI Special Agent Paul Hawkins knew that they needed to find Sam Miller, and he thought they had a lead that could help them track him down. We decided that Mr. Miller was probably part of the robbery, so we concentrated on Mr. O'Connor and Mr. Miller, What we decided was that he had a school-aged daughter and that she was attending school in Greece. Greece is a suburb in Rochester. So we subpoenaed the records of that school and found out that a transcript of the daughter's school record had been sent to Queens. And we decided that we needed to go 
send some leads out to Queens to see if we could find him. Uh, and that was like trying to look for a needle in a haystack because in the Astoria section of Queens is full of illegal Irishmen and they all changed their name. So you're not going to find them under their real name. That would be too easy. When Paul needed to find Sam in New York City, he called Richard Vega. I had to get on this guy as quickly as possible. So I called up Rich and I said, dude, I need a favor big time. I explained to him what I had. And I was like, whatever you got to do, dude, I got to have it now. So Paul had asked me if, number one, if I can go to the school to see if I can find anything out and confirm if that's uh, Samuel Millar's daughter. And number two, if uh, there was any chance that uh, I could locate the car that they were, uh, it actually was suspected of being involved in the robbery. So there was a van that they were looking for. So Paul gave me the license plate of the van and he asked me if there's any chance I can try to locate it. And I thought it was a funny request because <laughs> New York is, is so big, there's so many people. I told him, you know, that's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult for us to try to find a car in New York City. But I told him I'd see what I can do and get back to him. So that afternoon, I was off duty and I went and I went to the uh, school. Uh, I went to the school. I went to the administrator's office, the main office. And I asked to speak to either the principal or vice principal or whoever would be in charge. So I believe it was a vice principal a gentleman came up. I identified myself uh, as an FBI agent. I showed him my ID and I told him I was interested in looking at their registry of students because I was looking for a certain student. I didn't tell him who that was. So his response was, yes, uh, you can do that, but I need a subpoena. And of course, I didn't have a subpoena. So I told him, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have one, but it's essential that I try to get this information as soon as possible, if you can help me out. And he said, no, I really would need a subpoena. And he was talking loud enough, and the office was not that big. And there were other people in the office, so obviously they could hear our conversation. And again, you know, when you hear I'm with the FBI, everyone's looking at you to see what's going on. So the vice principal said, no, you know, I, I really would need a subpoena from you before I can give you any information. As he was saying that, he reached under the uh, desk and he pulled out what uh, ended up being the registry of students. And he placed it in front of me and kind of pushed it in my direction. Uh, and then he said, yes, uh, I'm really sorry. You know, you really need a subpoena, but uh, just a minute, I need to do something in the office. And he disappeared back into his office. So I opened up the book. I looked and I was able to find uh, the daughter of Samuel Millar to confirm that, in fact, she was registered at that school. And he came back after a few minutes, and he repeated. He said, so, once again, I'm very sorry, but, you know, I, I need a subpoena. And he was even willing to go back into the office again. He did say he would need to go back to the office. And I said, oh, no, you know, I, I, I guess I'm all set. I can always come back tomorrow with a subpoena if need be. So I was able to get the information we needed and went uh, back and told Paul Hawkins that, yes, in fact, she is registered there and told him uh, the next day I would reassign our team to that area to see if we can find the vehicle. 
If finding an Irish man in Queens was hard, finding a single car among the millions in New York City could have been closer to impossible. But the FBI's luck was starting to change. Shortly after we started our surveillance, one of the surveillance agents spotted the car just a couple of blocks away from the school. So we got very lucky. Um, the day before, I had taken maybe a couple of hours and I drove up and down those streets uh, looking to see if, uh, if I can find the vehicle, but I did not. But the next day, we were very lucky. It was parked not far from the school. We didn't have cell phones back then, so I found the payphone in the area of the school, and I called Paul to tell him that we had located the car. I had not ever personally seen Samuel Millar. Uh, I don't think I've even seen pictures of him at, at that point. Uh, so I didn't know what he looked like, but I had a good description of him that Paul had given me. And while I was on the phone talking to Paul, <laughs> I'm looking across the street and I see this gentleman that's fit the description of Millar walking with a young girl who was about the same age as uh, Samuel Millar's daughter was supposed to be. Needless to say, we did a little dance <laughs> because we finally figured out, you know, where he was. So one of our agents took a picture of Sam while he was walking. And in fact, that ended up to be Samuel Millar. Paul Hawkins still has that photo. It's the very first photo they had of Sam Miller. It's taken from a few blocks away, but Sam looks like he's staring straight down the lens. Just happened to bring some photographs. Oh, here we go. This is the very first time we found Mr. Miller. There he is, waiting for his daughter in school. Queens is a logical choice for an Irish family settling in New York City. The borough has a big Irish immigrant population and there's plenty of neighbourhoods that have Irish pubs and shops. For an Irish person looking for a small piece of home in the big city, Queens has a few of them. But that wasn't what drew the Millers to Queens. No, Sam's reason was different. It was very different. It was always in the back of my head. No matter where I live in New York, I'll always go to Queens. And the, the reason for that, I know it sounds that corny, is I remember as a young boy, Tell my dad when I was reading the Spider-Man comics, I said, Dad, you know, one day I'm going to go to New York. But not that, I'm going to go and live in Queens because that's where Spider-Man lives, Peter Parker. And I'm going to have my own comic book. My, my dad used to just like laugh, like catch yourself on, like more or less, you know. But that was always my dream. I'm going to live in Queens and I am going to have a comic book store. Once the FBI had sight of Sam in New York City, they were able to start watching his daily life and see where he went and who he met. He was working as a doorman under an assumed name and we would later find out that he was actually working for the Irish mob as a, um, well, how would you call this, a banker, I guess. He would collect cash from all the gambling spots because they didn't like to have a lot of money sitting around so they wouldn't get robbed. So he would do that every night. Um, that was his real job. But his, you know, um, upfront job with, with alias was a doorman at some hotel. These are all illegal casinos. And every now and again, the cops would raid, looking for the money, trying to get the money off you, you know? So my, my priority was always to get as much money out. You know, once I thought each box was getting filled up with thousands of dollars, take them out, get them out. I had a little motorbike. I'd drive to a safe house where we could put all the money. The whole idea of working at illegal casinos, making sure the money does not fall into the hands of the cops, 
but we were paying the cops off, and we used to have a phone call saying the uh, pest control's coming. That was what the cop would tell the pop would be the password. So you knew you were going to get raided that night. There's no way of avoiding it. And you couldn't close the place down. You knew you were going to get raided. So what you do, you make sure big honky chunk of money's gone, but leave a few crumbs there for the cops keep them happy, you know? So that's what you would do, you know what I mean? So that's how it was done. And then as soon as I would get on from one casino, I'd, I'd get a phone call. These boxes are getting overflowed. We need somebody to empty them quick, you know what I mean? So I'd be going over all Manhattan, different casinos, and just bring the money to the safe house. And that was my job. Paul Hawkins mentioned a minute ago that Sam was working under an alias. He had a few aliases during his time in New York. Andre Singleton was one. Frank Saunders, that was another. And then there was his third false name, the one he used when he worked at the casino, Tom O'Connor. Which, of course, just happened to be the name of the Brinks depot guard who the FBI suspected was involved in the heist. Sam was going by the name Tom when he was running the casino one memorable night. Never forget it. Cut long story short, heard this commotion at the front door. Didn't know what the hell was going on. Next thing our doorman, big branch is Rocky. Very big, big, big guy. Like, and he's coming in, he's all blooded. These two guys coming in behind him. Fucking, one's got a machine gun, one's got a rifle. So when he ran away, I was going in, she screamed to everybody, down the floor, down the floor, down the floor. Want the money, want the money. Slammed the door. She says, right, where's Tom O? That was my name. We know Tom O's here. We know he's, got, he's a box manager. He's got the keys. Where the fuck is he? So this is getting hated. There are two Puerto Ricans in there. They're getting quite hot, you know? So it's a couple of staff members looking at me like, Tom, what the fuck are you doing here? You know? But I know, you hand over the money, we're all going to be fucking killed no matter what. Somebody's going to be killed. These guys aren't just going to walk out of here. And I, you know, all of a sudden, old Belfast fucking anger in me starts. You know, I get the stubbornness in me, you know? So it says, uh, we know he's here. He's fucking Irish. We want him. Give us a keys. And we all, everybody goes home. Nice and safe. And I get there, you know? So I thought, the sensible thing was to give a keys. Because, well, maybe they won't kill people. Maybe they won't shoot witnesses. We don't fucking know this here, you know? So we next thing, that's a big blast off. A fucking rifle, you know? Fucking loud as anything, you know? All the, the fucking ceiling and all's coming down, you know? He says, that's the first, I'm not, the next one, blood comes, you know? Where's Tomo? And then I'm just getting, I'm thinking, if I could just get close to this fucker, I'd strangle him to fucking death, you know? But there's two wee girls, two uh, soft members, two young girls. I'm thinking all this mayhem, trying to multiply all this up, you know, what the fuck, hard, hard things want to happen here. Do I hand him the keys? Is he going to shoot me a minute I hand him the keys for not giving the keys the first time? Is he going to shoot the fucking witnesses here? Next thing I hear, the fucking sirens in the background. Next thing I hear, the two of them talking, and they run out the back. Next thing, the cops come. Everybody out, because they don't know who. All they've got is information. Somebody's fired shots inside this casino. So cops are shocked when I found it's a casino, first of all. They didn't realise this big private house is now a casino, and they're like, so they've got all these people, they don't know if it's a gunman, we're a gunman, you know who it is. So they'll have us all coming out, outlined out in the street, hands on the wall, right? And then the next thing they say is, uh, right, pants down, because they're thinking somebody's got a concealed weapon, you know? And then in the meantime, somebody has told the Daily News that there's been a raid on a fucking little illegal casino, and they're down, the reporter's down, and he's taking pictures. No fellas lined up against the fucking wall where fucking trousers then, you know? So the next day in the papers was uh, dealers caught with their pants down, you know? I mean, you had to laugh at it now. Very scary at the time, you know? And just somebody was watching over all of us, you know, at the time. Like, just thank God, you know, the cops came, you know? The FBI were beginning to piece together more info on Sam. 
But back in Rochester, the other man suspected of being involved in the heist, ex-cop Tom O'Connor, he was a very different story. Things were not going well on that count. We were trying to surveil Mr. O'Connor up here, but it was next to impossible. Because he was an ex-cop, he was very, very hinky. We tried to put a camera up on a telephone pole. He figured it out, like, within a day. Tom O'Connor was being more than evasive. The two other guards at the depot that night had agreed to and had passed lie detector tests with the police. They also agreed to go back to the depot and do a reenactment of the heist to help the investigation. Tom O'Connor refused to do both of those, and he continued to refuse to go to the police station to talk. Instead, he eventually invited two officers into his home and he gave them some answers, but the police felt that this wasn't worth a whole lot. O'Connor said the kidnappers had put a wool-knitted hat over his face as a blindfold, which police doubted, as it's not really a very effective blindfold. Then he said the thieves had driven a truck with a pull-down door at the back. This was despite the other guards saying they clearly heard a sliding side door closing as the thieves made their escape and the tyre tracks at the scene matching a minivan. O'Connor's answers, allied with his refusal to help the investigation in any real way, was, the police believed, a clear sign they were right to suspect him. But that didn't necessarily make things any easier for them. Yeah, I mean, he was impossible. We just could not. He had a circle of friends that, you know, we watched him, you know, meet up with some friends. We tried to run some informants into the places where he used to hang out. Trying to surveil him was tough. Uh, he usually made the surveillances. You know, we pulled out all the stops on, on trying to do background on him, and he always used cash, and never used a credit card. I mean, he was pretty smart, and he usually... He understood that cops like to work during the day, so he never did anything during the day. He always waited until nighttime. You know, he was out at, you know, midnight, two in the morning, whatever. And then on February 26th, seven weeks after the robbery, the investigation into the Brinks heist stopped. The first World Trade Center bombing happens, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and all the FBI and all the New York City police, of course, get diverted to that for months the first World Trade Center bombing and that was it they said we can't we have to work on that we can't do your case anymore it became pretty clear in the weeks after the World Trade Center bombing that the investigation into the Brinks heist wasn't just stalled it was as good as dead Paul Hawkins knew that unless he could rekindle the interest of the New York City FBI then there was almost no hope after a couple of months we go down to Manhattan and we approach the management of the New York office down there. We have a sit down and we lay out the fact that without their cooperation, there's just no way we're going to make this case without them. So they agree to put the, uh, it was actually the terrorism for some reason, terrorism SOG team and SOG is special operations group. I guess because there was this IRA rumor running around you know, even though I didn't really believe it myself, but, you know, it, the papers took off with it just because of Mr. Miller's background. But the bureau guys down there bought into it, too. And I'm like, well, I don't think it's a terrorism case. I think it's a robbery, but do what you got to do. So we got a really good surveillance team. Oh, my God, they were just amazing. And, and these guys uh, got back on Mr. Miller. And in the interim, he had opened up a comic book store. 
Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. This is reporter Gary Craig again. Yeah, that's where they found him, just running this comic book store, which he was... Yeah, which was very popular apparently with the neighborhood kids in Queens. I mean, when we you know, we talked to a number of them, and yeah, they, they loved Sam and just thought he you know, he was just apparently this gentleman comic book store owner. He was into the really old comic books, like these what they called Silver Age, Golden Age, like like the very first comic books ever made kind of thing. He um, obviously had quite a bit of money to spend on really expensive comic books. And um, during the surveillances, he would um, buy and sell comic books through his store. And um, the surveillances led us to post offices all over the Queens area. And he was buying postal money orders with stacks and stacks of cash. Since I was a kid, comics had been a big, big part of my life, you know. Uh, my father was a merchant seaman, always traveling to New York, always coming back with these comic books, you know, American comic books, you know, very rare thing. And Ireland at that time, especially in Belfast, you know, I started reading them and I just couldn't stop reading the bloody things. At the start, I wasn't very well educated. I was only a young lad at the time, like, you know, as I say, I was only about nine, ten, really. But that's probably where I learned most of my, got most of my education for reading. And when uh, my mother, she walked out on us when I was about eight, I think comic books really saved me, you know. I used to just escape into them, you know, and became more important in my life as I progressed, you know. It's hard to explain, you know, these are the people that I became my friends and my family, you know. With, I knew I could find, they wouldn't let me down at the end of the day, you know what I mean? The bad guy wins for a while, but you knew at the end, it's always going to be a good, happy ending, like, you know what I mean? I used to just try and escape into all this here, you know, and... Because between me and the comic books, we have that friendship that we needed each other at a time when my mental health was really going down shitterly, you know. It was during Sam's darkest hours on the blanket protest in prison that comics would offer an escape from the hell he was living through. And when I was on the blanket, I used to once again fantasise into comic books, people that I had known. So I remember this day I got up and I said, you know what we need here? Instead of the fucking area, we need the Incredible Hulk because he's green, he's obviously a supporter, he's Irish, you know? And think of him, he could just fart and every time he farted, he'd knock a door off here and kill a screw at the same time, you know? And then everybody started getting up and they started telling their stories about comic books. That whole day, we started talking about comic books. These are these tough ARA men. I said, fuck, I remember as a kid I bought this comic, you know? And my uncle bought me this and all this here. Now, now it was the most ridiculous conversation ever. But what it did, it took a day away from us. For once that day, we had to stop thinking about torture, getting beat up, worrying what's coming around the corner here when we hear the keys. We never thought about it. For one day, we had just had a great laugh at silliness, comic books. And there, once again, I looked back, I thought, there are comics again. Came to my rescue. And then when I went to America, it was, you know, I used to go to Madison Square Gardens, all the comic conventions and all. I used to bring my daughter with me, you know, and I, she's a big comic book fanatic, like, you know, just strange how the world turns, you know. So my whole life had changed, you know, because I remember once, I think it was about whatever, I was just turned a teenager, I remember saying to my father, you know, Dad, I'm going to go to America one day, I'm going to open up my own comic book store, and I'm going to live in Queens, because that's where Spider-Man lives, you know? And he should just pat me in the head and say, yes, yes, all right, son, whatever you say, you know? Because I remember uh, phoning him, says, guess where I'm living now in Queens, and guess what, I've got a comic book store, you know? 
So Tours had a bit of a laugh, you know. The comic books definitely surprised the FBI, but what was coming next was much stranger. So after a while, we noticed that he was driving a new car. And it was a beautiful Eddie Bauer Explorer. Back then, that was like top of the line. And we thought, well, gee, isn't that nice? He went out and bought that. So that we ran the tag on it and it came back to a priest. We're like, well, that's odd. Why would a priest buy a brand new car and give it to Mr. Miller? That makes no sense. And this priest's name was... uh, Father Pat Maloney. The one and only... That priest was Father Patrick Maloney, originally from Limerick and for decades working for the poor and vulnerable on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was a legend on the streets of New York City and he was a man never afraid to bend the rules if he thought the ends justified the means. I did that for several people before. At the same time I had done it for a doctor in Staten Island from Donegal. No big deal for me. Not totally illegal, not shady if you like, but it within a, a good act without committing a bad act to help somebody else. So... No problem. He gave me the $500. I went to the bank, my, my thing, got a check for 500 cashier, wrote it up, $500 down payment in my name. Sam came a couple of days later to pick up the car. I never even sat behind the wheel of that car. Drove it out of there, that was it. The new truck and the priests were a curiosity, but right there and then it seemed more like there could be a simple if maybe not innocent, explanation to it all. It was worth keeping an eye on, but for the FBI at that time, it wasn't critical to their investigation. You know, all of a sudden, this Catholic priest shows up and we're like, who the hell is this guy? You know, we had no idea who he was at the beginning. But then, on July 25th, Sam walked out of the comic book shop and headed east. Which was unusual, because Sam's home and his new truck were both in the opposite direction. An FBI agent saw this and she followed, while also alerting the rest of the surveillance team. Close to the comic book store, Sam got into the passenger side of a green van. Sitting in the driver's seat was a short man with a beard and glasses. The two chatted and from time to time, they seemed to look down at something between them, something out of sight of the FBI agents who were watching. Then after about 10 minutes, Sam climbed back out holding a small cardboard box. What they had just seen was strange enough that FBI agents decided to follow the van. They followed as it left Queens and went across the bridge into Manhattan before heading south to the Lower East Side. The driver parked up and walked into a building on East 9th Street, a place called Bonita's House. FBI agents ran the plates on the van and it came back to one father, Patrick Maloney, the same man who had bought the truck for Sam. So then we started digging into Father Pat And come to find out, he's like a neighborhood hero because he runs this halfway house and he does all kinds of wonderful things for the downtrodden in New York City and blah, blah, blah. And we're like, okay, this is very odd. Things got even more intriguing when they discovered the green van the priest had been driving when he met Sam had been transferred to him by a prominent member of the Rochester Norade chapter. He was an Irish-born man considered to be part of the same inner circle that Brinks guard Tom O'Connor moved in. It spurned a lot of theories. The fact that he was connected, uh, Mr. Miller was connected. You know, we thought, is that just how they got to know each other? Or is there really a conspiracy? And is there really money going back? Who knows? If at first Father Maloney had been a curiosity for the FBI, he was now much more. You know, we're like, okay, whatever. I mean, 
if we have to lock up a Catholic priest, I guess we're going to have to lock up a Catholic priest. What they didn't know then was just how interesting he would be. Because he was, and remains today, no ordinary priest. Have you met Father Pat? Very well-spoken, very charismatic, very intelligent. He was a worthy adversary, let's just put it that way. Next on Unusual Suspects, we meet Father Pat, the street priest of the East Village. Let us pray. O Lord, look with favor upon the gifts we offer you. Surveillance was intense. I mean, it was, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of FBI and New York City police. The surveillance became around the clock. I had never heard of the Brinks robbery. Why would I? Sam made the worst move of his life one day. Our people followed him. They said, this guy is so stupid. They were watching everything 24 hours a day. They were watching me and Pat. Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart. Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.